0: Today on Something You Should Know, there have been a few cases in the news of people trying to open the door on an airplane mid-flight. Is that actually possible? Then, how to deal with people who make your life difficult, and you know exactly who I mean.
1: They're really preoccupied with themselves. They're just looking at their own self-interest. They lack empathy, they feel entitled, and they want everyone to think they're superior. But they're really like everybody else.
0: Also, a lot of men have no idea how to apply cologne, and they use way too much. Let's fix that. Plus, understanding motivation, so you can use it to get the things in life you really want.
2: Motivation is actually something you can create on your own through effort, and it isn't something that you have to find through some external means or sources or you know inspirational posters or however you want to frame that.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. You know, I was on the radio for many years before doing this podcast, both at local radio stations on the air, as well as doing national programs, including the radio version of Something You Should Know, which ended about a year ago. Never in my radio career did I get the amount and the high quality of listener feedback that I get from doing this podcast, whether People write to me to you know tell me their story or to argue with what a guest said or or just to say hi. It is tremendous and and I love it. It's so fun. And uh, and if you ever need to get a hold of me, you can get me at mike at dot net. The question I'm often asked by listeners is you know how can I support this podcast? And and what I tell people and my answer is. That if when you listen, if you happen to hear an advertiser that sounds interesting to you, check them out, try them out. Many of them give free trials or deep discounts in the beginning so you can try them out with little risk. And, you know, we vet all of our advertisers. In fact, pretty much every advertiser now, when they come on board, we have a a phone call, a conference call. So we can talk to them and they can talk to us and, and I can vouch for every advertiser on this program. So if you want to support the podcast, that is a a great way to do it. First up today, I'll bet you have questions about how commercial airplanes work. I know I do. Most people do. When you get on an airplane, you you wonder about the systems and things. How does it all work? For example, how does the pilot start the plane? Is there an ignition key? Well, no, there is, is no ignition key on commercial airliners. It's a little more complicated than that. An air start motor rotates the jet engines before adding some fuel, and then that starts the ignition, which means that for the pilot there are some levers and buttons that need to be pushed and moved, but there is no ignition key. Does the crew eat the same food as the passengers? Well, for pilots, the food typically is the same as the food served in business class. Some airlines provide a menu for pilots to choose from. And while it is recommended that the pilot and the co pilot eat different entrees in case of food poisoning, it's not a hard and fast rule. Now, it's rare for flight attendants to be provided meals on flights under 12 hours, but they are allowed to eat meals that are left over from the passengers and they can bring their own food. How much fuel does an airplane use? Well, the amount of fuel that's consumed depends on the aircraft type, the altitude, the flight path, and the weather. A Boeing 767 on a flight from London to New York would burn about 75,000 pounds of jet fuel, while a Boeing 747 or an Airbus A380 might use twice that amount. Why do airplanes leave long, white trails in the sky? These condensation trails form when humid exhaust from a jet engine cools very quickly in colder, drier, higher altitudes. It's not unlike the fog that results when you exhale on a cold day. Could the plane's door be opened mid-flight? This ranks among passengers' biggest fears, but it is extremely unlikely, if not impossible. The pressure inside the plane is much greater than the pressure outside the plane, which means The door is constantly being forced closed. You would have to be Superman to open that door in mid-flight. And that is something you should know. When I say the phrase high-conflict personality, I bet somebody pops into your head, someone you know. Perhaps several people you know come to mind. These are the people who can really make your life difficult. And I suspect all of us have People like this in our lives, family, friends, people who, for all their good qualities, can have this high-conflict personality that can make life difficult. So what's the best way to deal with them? Well, Bill Eddy is a guy who has the answers. He's analyzed these people closely. He's the co-founder of the High Conflict Institute. He's an attorney, a family law specialist, and he's author of a book called Five Types of People Who Can Ruin Your Life. Hey, Bill. Welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Mike. Looking forward to speaking with you. You
0: know, there's that old saying, or I don't know if it's an old saying, but I've said it a few times. You know, life would be so much easier if it weren't for people. But maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe what, what uh, people really mean by that, if it weren't for the kind of people that you're talking about, the high-conflict people, the people that cause the problems, who are these people?
1: Well, we find basically five different types and they pop up anywhere they could pop up in family conflicts workplace conflicts neighbor disputes etc even with strangers and they seem to all have in common a lot of blaming other people all-or-nothing thinking unmanaged emotions and extreme behaviors so they all kind of have that they usually catch you by surprise it's almost shocking it's like oh wow I didn't realize he or she was going to be like that about this.
0: Oh, yeah. Who hasn't had that experience of, well, where did that come from? Uh, what? Mm-hmm. And, and so, and now these people, these five types of people, they have names. I mean, they're, the, the, the world of psychology has identified these people and put labels on them. So can you, can you run through them real quick?
1: Yeah, real quick, but one thing I want to say about putting labels on people is don't do it openly with people. Don't tell them, I think you're a high-conflict person or one of these five, uh, because they'll make your life miserable. So the five overlap with five personality disorders, and it doesn't mean they have a personality disorder, but they usually have some traits. So narcissistic personality, that's that's one a lot of people are aware of nowadays, where they're really preoccupied with themselves, they're just looking at their own self-interest, they lack empathy, they feel entitled, and they want everyone to think they're superior. But they're really like everybody else, they're not superior. Then we have your sociopaths, or antisocial personalities, who are really con artists, they're manipulators, bullies. Um, They like to dominate other people, they lack remorse, etc. Then you have people with borderline personalities, and this is a confusing name, but it basically think of them as on the border between love and hate. For practical purposes, that's what happens. You see them sudden mood switch, and sometimes they're just super friendly, affectionate maybe, and then they're outraged and and ready to punch you or storm out of the room or something like that. So the wide mood swings, then people with paranoid personalities who really suspicious, they think everyone's got a conspiracy against them. They think you're out to get them. So they're going to get you first. Um, And then there's the histrionic. That's the very dramatic, uh, you know, emotional, everything's exaggerated. So you put those together with that, those four characteristics of preoccupied with blaming others, all or nothing, thinking unmanaged emotions, and extreme behavior of high-conflict people. And we have five types of high-conflict people. And one thing that they do, the high-conflict people, is they tend to target somebody, and they pick on that person. And it might be someone they're getting divorced from, or someone at work. And by the way, People at work now say the biggest problem is other people, certain other people. So what we're seeing is this pattern, and it seems to be growing.
0: So where do you suppose this comes from? I mean, people develop these personality traits that are outside what we consider normal, but but why? How? Is it something from childhood? Are they born this way? Where does it come from?
1: Well, it seems to be very much part of personality development, which surprisingly occurs mostly by the age of five or six. By then, we're kind of the basic framework of who we're going to be. And so every case I've seen with adults goes back to childhood. Technically, since I'm a therapist, a licensed clinical social worker, I can diagnose people and I'm not supposed to diagnose them with a personality disorder until they're adults because up to then are formative years. For example, all teenagers on any given day are narcissistic, borderline, paranoid, sociopathic, and histrionic, and so we don't stick them with a label But as adults, if they're stuck in that pattern, yeah. But it goes back to childhood. So let me say something about that. Part of it seems to be um, genetic. We have a tendency towards certain characteristics that we're born with. And so someone might have some, some personality traits that make them more introverted, or more extroverted, or make them vulnerable to becoming an alcoholic, or vulnerable to becoming a narcissistic personality. So part of it is genetics at birth, but part of it is what happens, especially in early childhood, that tilts people more towards or more away from these characteristics. So it's tendencies but life experience then fills in the gap. So in a way, you might say it's nature and nurture, you know, genetics and environment.
0: Do you think that people who fall into these five categories know there's a problem?
1: No. That's one of the big problems is they don't know there's a problem. And for them, it's really, this is who I am, this is fine. And if you have a problem with it, it's all your fault. So that's part of the problem is they don't reflect on themselves. They don't go, oops, I shouldn't have done that. I better do it different next time. Instead, what they go is, oops, you messed up. You know, you better change. You better quit being that terrible person you are to somebody else without looking at themselves.
0: But isn't there a risk of of being too far the other way where everything's my fault and, oh, I'm so sorry, and I'm sorry you're upset, and, oh, it must be me?
1: Yeah, yeah. And the ideal with everything about human behavior and human personality is balance. And so, yes, you want to reflect on yourself but you don't want to be so self-critical you're immobilized. And as a therapist, I've worked with some people like that. As a lawyer, I've worked with people like in high-conflict divorces where one person does all the blaming and the other person is depressed and blames themselves. Neither one of those is a healthy thing, but they don't, people don't become high-conflict personalities that blame themselves all the time you basically don't hear from them because they isolate themselves and and they're discouraged and they don't bother people so yes you could go too far with that so the question is balance that's the key
0: so in dealing with high conflict people and these five different types of people who can ruin your life Is the strategy the same across the board for all of them, or does each one have its own individual strategy?
1: Well, the answer is yes to both of those. Across the board, there's some things, there's a method I call the CARS method. It's connecting, analyzing, responding, and setting limits. What that is, is across the board, it helps, first of all, calm them down by connecting with them. Tell them, you you know, you have some empathy, attention, respect for them. Even if that's the opposite of how you feel, that's what calms people down. Second is helping analyze their choices, your choices, their choices. Focus on the future rather than the past behavior. The third is responding. Usually they have misinformation. They distort information. So responding with accurate information. Don't say you're distorting. Just say, look, here's some information that may be helpful. And the fourth thing is setting limits because high-conflict people don't stop themselves. So the people around them have to stop them, stop them from talking, stop them from hitting, stop them, you know, society has to stop them at some to some extent. So these four things, with all of them, but there's some refinements with each of these personalities. So let's say you're dealing with a narcissist. It's real easy to engage in an argument with a narcissist about who's superior, because they think they're superior, but the behavior that they have makes everyone around them think they're inferior, And so the temptation is to say, you're not so hot, buddy. You're the idiot. I'm the smart guy here. And don't do that. That doesn't work. So that's specialized for narcissists. Don't engage in arguing over who's smarter. Focus on what to do next. So that's just one example.
0: But I would imagine that that applies to everybody. I mean, to sit and talk about what the problem is with them is is fairly pointless. Let's figure out how to fix this.
1: Yes, and in fact, the, all the principles like the CARS method I just described can be applied with anybody, and that's the thing. It's safe, it's harmless, it's really positive human relationships. So in many ways, it's like emotional intelligence. When you have emotional intelligence, you aren't busy criticizing people, you're sharing problems, you're looking at things from their point of view, your point of view, etc. High-conflict people are the people with the least emotional intelligence. And it's kind of sad because they stay frustrated and stuck in their lives. I'm speaking with Bill
0: Eddy. He's the author of the book, Five Types of People Who Can Ruin Your Life. You know, for a while now, I've been taking vitamins I get from Careof. Careof is a monthly subscription vitamin service made from effective quality ingredients that are personally tailored to my exact needs. What you do is you take this really quick online quiz that makes it really easy to figure out what vitamins and supplements you specifically need. And the recommendations you get are based on clinical research and traditional medicine, with input from doctors and nutritionists. Then you get shipped right to your door a 30-day supply of individually wrapped packets with your specific vitamins and supplements. Care of Vitamins cost about 20% less compared to similar brands at drug and health food stores. And I love it. It's, it's just so easy. I put out the packet for the day with breakfast so I don't forget, and I don't have to go hunt around for bottles of supplements all over the place. I just open the packet, take the vitamins, and I'm done. For 25% off your first month of personalized Care of Vitamins, visit TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code SOMETHING. Now, you have to get that URL just right. It's TakeCareOf.com and enter the promo code SOMETHING for 25% off your first month of personalized care of vitamins. So, Bill, it seems from listening to you that all these strategies to deal with these high-conflict people, this, <laughs> this sounds like a lot of work. It's a, it's a bit exhausting, it seems, to have to be so deliberate in how you deal with these people.
1: Well, part of it, I think, is getting these skills as a routine. So since I work in this field as a lawyer and a therapist and a mediator, for me, it's kind of like, oops, okay, high-conflict person. I got to give them some empathy, attention, respect, focus on what to do next. And it's pretty quick. I mean, within a minute or two some of those kinds of things you can do and move on. Even though they may be the opposite, you may feel like strangling the person, um, it makes your life easier to just engage briefly this way. But that's the other part of it, is don't engage too deeply with high-conflict people. If you realize this is a high-conflict person and they're spouting some kind of nonsense, don't argue with the nonsense. Just say, you know, hey... You know, I can see you're frustrated, but I got to go now, so catch you later. So you don't engage. You don't get stuck. Don't try to change how they think. Don't focus on their past behavior and try to give them insight into themselves. It'll save you a whole lot of time and stress. And sometimes you want to completely get away from the relationship. So it's a question of managing relationships, avoiding relationships, rather than changing this other person. But that, it,
0: while that may be relatively easy for you to do, it's easier said than done for a lot of other people to, who, who would immediately start to argue the facts and the points and the, what, what the person said rather than, uh, than take that kind of high road approach that you take and, and move on.
1: Well, the thing is, I think we have to all develop a little bit more self-restraint. So we realize, oops, this is somebody I'm not going to engage with. This is somebody I'm not going to argue with. There's no point. I won't feel better after five minutes of arguing, and they won't have changed their mind. And so while it, it may sound like or look like it's taking the high road, it's really self-survival. Uh, walking away sometimes is the smartest thing to do.
0: Well, it may be smart, but it's also hard. I think, Yes, I th- yeah. it
1: takes some practice
0: and is there any sense that if you deal with people that way that you that you set a new standard with that person so the next time they come back we don't have to start all over again that they understand that that you're not going to put up with this shenanigans and and the relationship gets better or is it a new problem every time
1: it's it's kind of in between they they're more you know, in a sense, a thick skull. They don't get things because they don't reflect and they don't try to change. So to some extent, it is like a new day. You're just starting over. It's like Groundhog Day. It's the same thing day after day. But my experience is five times or 10 times and the person starts to get it that, oh, okay, I'm going to leave you alone. They don't get it about themselves. They just get it about their relationship with you. So, for example, if you have someone, let's say it's a family member, that you just don't engage and you kind of make it shorter and shorter and shorter interactions, they start realizing you're not the person to go to and complain to, so they're going to find somebody else. And it does get easier over time. It just takes sometimes a longer time than with other ordinary people.
0: Because all of those people, all five of those types of people, have people in their life that they don't screw with that it's either their boss or somebody that they know there are limits with those people, and they don't pull this stuff with them.
1: To, to some extent, that's true. But for some of these folks, they even do it with everybody, even their closest family members who are the ones trying to help them out. But you're right also, to some extent. There's people that go, uh, oh, I'm just going to avoid so-and-so. And you see this like with a workplace bully is workplace bullies start out picking on anybody, but the ones they keep picking on, they find out they can get away with it. And it may be because management tolerates it, or it may be because the person they're picking on tolerates it. So it's really, it's, it's kind of a, a slow process, but you've got to be able to set limits. That's but, why that's so important, even if it's just walking away.
0: But in that case where it is the workplace bully picking on someone, and as you say, some people tolerate it and other people don't. What does it mean to not tolerate a workplace bully? What do you do to shut them down?
1: Well, partly it depends on how extreme it is, and we certainly have to put responsibility on the organization, like people that have been dealing with sexual harassment as organization protects the, the perpetrator for that, that's their fault. That's not the individual victim's fault. But some individual victims are able to say, you know, that's enough, Joe, um, or just walk away. They don't get stuck in some of those conversations. The problem is people don't feel allowed to be what they would think of as rude. So a lot of really nice people get picked on because they try to be nice to high-conflict people, and high-conflict people don't care whether you're nice to them or not. They just keep doing what they do because that's their, their habit. That's their personality. So a part of it is just saying, even in your own mind, I'm not going to listen to this. I don't believe them. Or they might, you might say something out loud. Well, I disagree. We're going to have to agree to disagree, and I've got to get back to work. So just shutting them down, even briefly, you don't have to say you're being a bully or you're being inappropriate. You just say, I've got to go.
0: And my last question is, is there any sense of you know, what percentage of the population these five people combined make up?
1: Well, it seems to be about 10%. Um, there's, we don't have research on this at this point. There is research on personality disorders. In uh, the United States, and it comes out about 15% of the population meets the criteria for a personality disorder based on large random studies. But not all people with personality disorders are high-conflict people. They don't all have a target of blame, someone that they, you know, put this all on. So that's why I think it's probably about 10%, and it's a lot that overlap, preoccupied with blame but also traits of one of these five personality disorders.
0: Well, given that it's one out of ten people, we're all likely going to interact with these people throughout our lifetime. So it's good to have some, some ammo to, to deal with them when the time comes.
1: Exactly. And one thing I want to say is I think they may be increasing Because of the nature of society, we're rewarding this kind of behavior in many ways through the shows we like to watch, through, you know, anger at the news and all of these things. So I think that getting the tools now is real important because the more people that know how to kind of manage and distance themselves from this, the less it's going to bother all of us.
0: My guest has been Bill Eddy. He is the co-founder and president of the High Conflict Institute. He is a certified family law specialist and senior family mediator at the National Conflict Resolution Center in San Diego. And his book is Five Types of People Who Can Ruin Your Life. You'll find a link to his book at Amazon in the show notes. Thanks,
1: Bill. Sure. Thank you. <music>
0: In order to accomplish your dreams, your goals, you need to have motivation to get you through. So, it's important to understand just how motivation works. Does motivation strike like lightning, or does it come from within? Is it the driver of your efforts, or the result of your efforts? Jeff Hayden has researched what motivation is, how it works, and some of the myths people believe about it. He's the author of a book called The Motivation Myth, How High Achievers Really Set Themselves Up to Win. Hi, Jeff. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me, Mike. So since it's the title of your book, let's start there with what is the motivation myth? I think most people have a sense of what motivation is and how it works. So what's the the myth? Where did that come from?
2: I was talking to Venus Williams, which if you're going to drop a name, that's a good one to drop. And you know, clearly she's a world-class tennis player, but she also does a variety of other things. She owns a design company, she has a fitness wear line, and she's actively involved in all of them. So here's a person who is achieving tremendous success in a variety of pursuits. And not once does she ever mention this lightning bolt moment where she had discovered her life's purpose and had all the motivation she needed to go out and conquer. And I thought about all the other really successful people that I'm fortunate enough to talk to, and none of them ever described that moment. So contrast that with lots of people I talk to that say they feel stuck, that feel they're kind of in a dead end spot that can't figure out what they want to be and do, don't have the motivation to do anything. And they're all waiting for that lightning bolt to hit them that says, this is who you are. This is what you should do. And you are now filled with all the motivation and determination you need to go achieve it. And so that really became the premise of the book, which is that highly successful people don't wait or don't expect to have motivation come to them they actually go out and create it by trying something they're interested in, working hard at it, enjoying a small amount of success, which makes you feel good about yourself, which motivates you to get up the next day and keep going. So motivation is actually something you can create on your own through effort, and it isn't something that you have to find through some external means or sources or you know inspirational posters or however you want to frame that. But
0: I've heard people say they had that lightning bolt moment that that you're saying doesn't happen, but I know people who say it did happen.
2: Well, I do think there are some. You you, You can run into some people that when they were 14 decided that they wanted to be something. I have yet to meet one, and I have met a ton of people who say they haven't found that yet. So if you're fortunate enough to be that person that had the lightning bolt, well, you don't need me. <laughs> you can skip me and just go on being a, a tremendous success. But if you're struggling or unsure or haven't had it, then this is a good place to start. And everything that I have ever accomplished, I have done that way. I have never had the lightning bolt.
0: But if you don't have some sort of lightning bolt moment, where does the idea come from? I mean, you mentioned, okay, so you're going to run a marathon. Well, where did that come from? It had to come from somewhere, something Something spurred you to decide to run a marathon.
2: Right. And so what you do is you just stop and say to yourself, What am I interested in? A great example is Kirk Hammett. He's the lead guitarist in Metallica. You know, you think you would think a guy that plays in a band that sold a hundred million albums and still somehow, even as a dinosaur band, can sell out fifty thousand seat stadiums was this guy who always had a plan and a purpose. But his soul the sole lightning bolt moment he had was he had played for a little while and stuck his, his guitar in a uh, closet because he was tired of it. And one day he happened to look at it and he said, you know, it would be really fun to play that better. And so that was his whole goal. And that has always been his goal. He's never set out to be a rock star. He just wanted to be a musician that got to play with his friends. And of course, it's become something else. But you can pick things that you're interested in. We all have things we're interested in and just say, you know what, I would like to get better at that. Or I would like to become whatever that thing is. And you start and you keep your head down and you do the work. And at some point you will figure out, is this right for me? Is this not right for me? I I think people get stuck with the idea that they have to pick something that will be a lifelong pursuit. And I think it's a lot more fun to be what I call a serial achiever, where you set out to do something and maybe it takes you four or five years and you reach a really high level or you've accomplished something really great. And if you get to that point and say, you know, this isn't as fulfilling or fun as it used to be. And I'm really interested in that, whatever that may be. Then you can shift and you can start that process all over again. And you haven't lost anything. You haven't wasted the four or five years that you put into the other thing because all of the skills, all of the discipline, all of the mental perseverance and character and everything else that you develop through that time, you can apply to the other pursuit. So you could actually have four or five, six things over the course of your life that you achieve at a very high level, that are really really fulfilling.
0: Not always. Uh, for example, I know several lawyers who have who have put in a lot of effort to become a lawyer and find out they hate it, and right. they're really stuck. It isn't like they can just go, oh well, let's go try something else. They can't. They'll, they don't. They wouldn't make enough money. They, there's no way they could start over.
2: Possibly not, although I, I would argue that my wife is a really good example of someone who did start over. She uh, had a career in finance, worked for finance, a Fortune 500 company, and was a director of finance for them. And then one day decided she was interested in healthcare and went back to school. And now she puts people to sleep for a living. So it's not impossible. But there are other ways to look at that. If you're a lawyer and you really don't like what you're doing, it is still possible within that field to find other things that you can do that might be more interesting. I disagree that you are truly stuck. I think there is usually a way. It may be a hard way and it may not be the fun way, but I feel like there is a way. And I've done something similar too. I I decided in I worked in manufacturing and I decided I wanted to run a plant. That was my goal. And I got to the point where I was running a plant. It took me 17 years to get there, a lot of hard work. Three years into that, I thought, you know what? <sighs> Whatever my dream was, it didn't turn out to be quite like I hoped it would be. I want to do something different. And so I shifted and I started writing. And uh, I had no writing background, didn't go to school for that, anything else. But I decided I would work hard and put in the effort and um And I've been able to do some really cool things. So I do think it's possible. It's really hard, though. I'm not going to deny that.
0: If you have a goal of, let's say, you want to lose weight, and Mm -hmm. you you see other people losing weight, and you think, gosh, those people have such willpower. I don't think I could do that. So you decide to lose weight, and the effort to lose that weight comes from where if it's not coming from motivation?
2: Uh, that's a really good question. Well, you have to have a reason and that's the problem with a lot of goals. Lose weight is a great one. If your goal is to lose weight, there's nothing quantifiable about that. It doesn't mean anything. It's like saying I want to get in better shape. You know, what does that mean? How do you judge that? How do you measure that? So like for me, when I decided I wanted to get in better shape because I felt like my cardio conditioning was pathetic, I decided that the best way to do that was to go off and ride this hundred mile Grand Fondo that had. 11,000 feet of climbing in it and all this stuff and only had about four or so months to train for it. So that became my goal. Can I go ride that thing? As a byproduct, I lost weight. So that was how I approached that fuzzy goal and made it a concrete one.
0: I'm wondering if maybe some of this is just semantics. I mean, If you All right, so let's say I want to lose 20 pounds. And in that process, I have those times where I I don't want to go to the gym or I want to eat that chocolate cake. And the thing that keeps me on track, uh, you call it working the plan, but I would call it motivation.
2: Well, and you can get motivation, though, by working your plan. Because if you start on your plan and you go for four or five days, if you commit to yourself that no matter what, for four or five days, I'm going to work my plan. And I think anybody can do anything for four or five days. And if you can't, then you probably don't want to achieve whatever the goal is that you're even talking about. So if you do that four or five days and you follow a realistic plan that will help you lose weight, you'll get to the end of the four or five days. And if you get on the scale, you will have lost some weight. And that in and of itself is gratifying because your hard work paid off. You can see the results. You know you're on the train and the train is heading towards the right direction. Or destination, and so then that I feel like motivates you to say, you know what, this works. I'm going to get up tomorrow. I'm going to do the same thing.
0: So it's it sounds like what you're saying is that that motivation doesn't push you. Mo- motivation isn't the cause; it's the result.
2: Motivation is a result of achievement and of feeling good about that achievement and then you feel motivated to go and do that the next day so it just gives you that push that's enough to make you get up the next day and do whatever your plan is but it doesn't give you enough of a push that you're gonna stick with it for six months without any gratification and without any fulfillment and without any of those moments where you feel good about yourself
0: I understand what you're saying not to wait around for the motivation to strike you that you need to make your plan and work your plan But the idea of running a marathon or being a tennis star or writing the great American novel has to come from somewhere. And the reason it bubbles up to the surface is it's attached to motivation. You may have other ideas that don't have the motivation attached, but the ones that you decide to pursue, you decide to pursue because the motivation's already there. Otherwise, where? Where does this come from?
2: Well, let's turn it around. If I asked you if there are things that you've always thought you might like to try but haven't, would you have some items on that list? Sure. There it is. (laughs) If you've got those little nagging things that are on your list or on your bucket list or things that have always seemed interesting to you or that you've always thought you wanted to achieve or the best way I like to look at it, if there are things that you would like to become because I think when you get far enough on a path of achievement, you actually become that thing. So like the guy that wants to run a marathon, say, at first he's a guy who goes out and runs. But at some point he starts to think of himself as a runner. People that start a business, at first they're just slogging along and trying to create something. But at some point they start to see themselves as entrepreneurs. And it you get to become that thing. If you're a supervisor, at first you're just delegating and, and trying to – Establish authority, but at some point you start to see yourself as a leader so if you think about things that you have always wanted to become then Everybody has a few of those things on their list and that's the perfect place to start because it's something you're already interested in It's something you already think you would like to try You just haven't so try I mean, I know that sounds incredibly simple but it's true. When you're looking back someday, when you're 80 and sitting on your rocker, I do this with myself all the time. I don't want to look back and think, I wonder what would have happened if I had tried that. I would rather look back and say, you know, I tried a bunch of stuff that didn't really work out, but I did try some stuff that did, and it was really fun, and, and I feel good about that. I, I always regret the things I didn't do a lot more than the things I did, even if they turned out wrong, because you can fix what turns out wrong, but you can never fix what you never tried to do.
0: Sure, and there's there's been plenty of research of people in their later years that have said that exact thing. I, I regret yep. the things I didn't try, not the things I tried and failed. Yep. Uh, so you
2: learn from your failures. You don't learn anything from not doing anything.
0: But I always wonder about those people. Well, you asked me if there are things on, I, I, I've always yeah. I've always said I've wanted to learn the to play the piano, and I've never done it. And so I start to think, well do I say I want to learn to play the piano or do I really want to play the piano? And it's kind of like people who want to write the great American novel, but they never do. And maybe they don't really want to do, they just want to think that they want to do it.
2: Well, and that's that's a good point. So the best way to find out is for you to go off and at least commit to a little bit of time of trying to learn to play piano. And you'll find out not within the first week, but within a few weeks, you'll find out whether that's actually something that you're interested in and that you have some kind of knack for, or that you just have the enough interest that you're willing to put in the work to get better. And you can find out. And if you do find out after a month that, you know what, I've gotten, I actually can play a few things. I'm figuring out how this works, but I don't really like it like I thought I would. That's cool. And you will never think about it again, and you can focus on some other goal that's on your list as well. Yeah, and you I, won't have that thing nagging at you every once in a while.
0: I like that idea, because, you know, I, I don't do it, and I don't know why I don't do it, and now I'm thinking, well, you know, I should have done it years ago, and now I th- <laughs> so So yeah. it, it just perpetuates that I'll never do it, but what, but why not? Why not go give it a shot and see what happens? Yeah. And
2: My my example of that, and I'm, I'm committed to doing something about it soon... Um, is I've always wanted to play guitar. And, you know, I've, I'm lucky enough to have hung out with some some pretty accomplished guitarists, and I watch them, and I think, wow, that would be awesome. And then, you know, I have picked up a guitar and tried to strum it and thought, what how did they even start to do that? Um, but I've got that nagging thing, and I'm going to scratch that itch and see where it goes. And it's okay if you find out that it turns out that it's not something you really want to do. That's cool. And I actually think that's good, because those little nagging goals that we all have they do nag at us and so clean mm. them off your list it, if it turns out to be something you really love that's awesome if it turns out that it isn't that's awesome too because then you can focus on something else
0: are you really gonna do it why haven't you I done am, it by now
2: I am, uh... because the truth is that i am afraid i will be horrible <laughs> and so i you know fear of failure affects us all and so i am afraid that i will be just a disaster um, and so I've have not, but but I've finally decided to quit being such a chicken, um, and I will try.
0: You said at the beginning of our conversation that you've never met anybody who had that lightning bolt moment that provided the the motivation to be successful. It happened to me.
2: You you personally.
0: And when I was a teenager, I walked into a radio station, and I decided then and there, at that moment, this is what I'm going to do, and I've never done anything else.
2: Really? Yep. Oh, that's awesome. Never. Let's well, see. I think you're a. I I find that. I. I how do I say this? Um, I you're a lucky guy. <laughs> I think. I think that's really awesome because you know, I floundered around for quite some time and still sometimes flounder to think, you know, is this the right path? Is that the right path? I, I yeah. still struggle with that. I never did. To some degree. And I, I, never, I think that's awesome that I you never, did, that's, um, that's great.
0: I never worked at McDonald's. I never did anything outside of the radio business until two years ago when, you know, the radio business is not doing very well. And I segued over to podcasting, which is doing very well. And but but it's similar. So I've ne- never done, never had a job, you know, working retail or pumping gas. Or I've never done anything that wasn't related to radio.
2: That's awesome. Yeah, I, I wish that was true for me. I wish it was true for more people. Well, man, uh, life I've, would be a lot simpler.
0: Well, if you're going to accomplish great things, you got to get motivated, and it, it certainly helps to understand how motivation works and and how it doesn't work, and and how to use it to your advantage. Jeff Hayden has been my guest. The book is The Motivation Myth, How High Achievers Really Set Themselves Up to Win. And if you check the show notes for this episode, you'll find a link to his book at Amazon. Thanks for being here, Jeff.
2: All right. Take care, man.
0: I know you've had the experience of being in an elevator or, or a room with some guy who's got way too much cologne on. And so to prevent being that guy, I want to pass along GQ magazine's recommendations for how men should apply cologne so as not to offend or overpower. The preferred method is the spray and dab. You deliver one squirt to each wrist and then dab your neck. Why? It doesn't have anything to do with pulse points or anything. It just happens to be where your skin meets the air most often. Next, if you're wearing a really powerful cologne, spray a burst into the air in front of you and walk through it, but only do that once, and that will prevent you from going overboard. You should never spray directly on your chest or your clothes or your neck, because that is what makes you overpowering, and everybody in the elevator will hate you, (laughs) and that is something you should know. If you haven't left a review of this podcast yet on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, here's your reminder. Please leave a review. It only takes a second, and it's a great way to support this podcast. I'm Mike Herbrothers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.